You're listening to 3CR Radio. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, filmmaker Aaron Baer joins us. We chat with Georgia Thane about the campaign for the decriminalisation of sex work in South Australia. And author and historian Dr Eves Rees joins us. Well, Aaron Baer is a filmmaker from Seattle whose documentary Yes, I Am, the Rick Wyland story, is currently screening as part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. And I chatted with Aaron earlier this week, and there is a trigger warning. This interview includes issues that may distress listeners. Thank you for having me, James. Uh, Rick Wyland was uh, one of the founders of Microsoft, uh, one of the largest uh, LGBTQ philanthropists in the entire world. I think he ranks 11th in, in terms of philanthropy, um, dedicated his life to change for all queer people and uh, also at the same time was a a fallible person, just like all of us, Um, a complicated person uh, uh, had a genius sort of level brain and, you know, wrote some of the first piece of code, but he suffered. And uh, he then in uh, 2006 uh, ended up taking his own life. And uh, the film isn't really trying to solve the why he 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 did that. This film is about his legacy and how he has affected so many and countless people um, globally. Absolutely. Of course, you interviewed so many people who were close to Rick, especially his partners. Uh, they talked about his emotional intensity and how he internalised his emotions. What can you tell us about the chronic depression that he suffered? Uh, well, honestly, James, it's it's that was kind of a little bit like cracking up in a cold case in a way because Rick was uh, incredibly private and he didn't want to be known. He didn't want all of these accolades, you know, when, you know, people donate, you know, $5 million, they, they, you, you hear about it and that never happened with Rick. And I think that, you know, somebody who wanted to help so many other people, um, but couldn't help himself, um, I don't know if there's a if like there's an actual word for that, and you know when you suffer from this deep level of depression um, and no one can bring you out of it, uh, it's I don't know if there's an answer there. Like I don't know if 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 and I did spend some time trying to figure out the why, but I don't know if there if there were. I mean, I'm sure there were triggers along the way, but I don't know if there was like an exact reason or thing. Um, and again, like. Rick had a just a hard time processing emotions. Even Bill Gates in the film says early on, Rick was a very hard guy to get to know. And, uh, but also at the same time, Rick, Rick could come out of his shell. So it's like this like duality that we all have as human beings. Uh, and Rick did, he made an effort and on so many levels, but ultimately his, um, his depression and, uh, anxiety just it got the best of him. Of course, it's been 40 years since the first AIDS case was diagnosed. Rick was an out gay man in the 1980s during during those years. Uh, I imagine grief and loss was a huge issue for him, having lost so many friends. Indeed. Uh, he. I was lucky enough to stumble across his, his journals, his daily journals that dated back from 1976. And... Uh, when I say cracking up in a cold case, it was very much like that to where he uh, he never gave an interview. 
there's like virg- I, I scoured the earth looking for any video of Rick or any uh, interviews with Rick, the Microsoft archive, a Stanford archive. And he wanted to be very private and, you know, f- and, but he was one of, I, I think one of few funding um, AIDS and HIV research uh, very early on. And also, um, uh, queer rights, gay marriage, all of that. Absolutely. His impact on philanthropy in the US, the HIV AIDS organisations and, and gay and lesbian and queer organisations has been massive. What can you tell us about that legacy? Uh, I believe he has donated over, well, I mean, through his, uh, through his gifts that keep on, that truly keep on giving over the years, uh, it's over $200 million dollars. And it's, I mean, to me, that's such a staggering amount of money that can, that can cause and affect so much change for AIDS and HIV research for, uh, gay rights, uh, that will help us carry forward. And that's how Rick set it up. That that's how he, that's how his brain worked is that he wasn't just going to give this one-time gift. He wanted to know that this gift that he was giving was going to actually affect social and economic change down the road. Uh, and he, this, is, this is how he thought truly. Yes, and it was fascinating in your documentary how it became clear that he used his coding skills to be able to kind of, you know, look into a crystal ball, if you like, and see how how his his donations would enable organisations to grow and thrive and the impacts that would have for the whole community. Yeah, his it's again, it's it's something that I think most human beings like they don't they don't think like that. It's it's a matter of thinking like what's next? You know, some people I mean, a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck and Rick was able to he had the means to financially provide this long lasting change. Like Glad wouldn't exist without Rick. Um act up all of these almost grassroots organizations back in the eighties are now these very large organizations that have impacted so many other people. And I, I Rick's impact on, on the world. It's, I mean, like I say it at the end of the documentary, like it just, it can't be, it can't be shown in, in, you know, in a matter of 60 minutes, it's, it's, it's so massive the impact that Rick has has had on the world. Aaron, tell us the journey that led you to being the director of Yes I Am, the Rick Wyland story. Oh, that's how much time you got here, James. I got, <laughs> I uh, I was approached after a film festival in Seattle where I showed my my first film called Finding Kim and Michael Fela, who is in the film, one of Rick's best friends, approached me and said, Hey, I, I have an idea about a documentary. And, you know, you're always you're, at film festivals. Uh, you're having a lot of these like 30 second to three minute conversations. And I said, sure, email me. And he actually did. And um, that was August of 2016. And uh, I went over to his house. We talked about Rick, told me a little bit about him. And I kind of had to sit down with myself and Sit, like say is this a story I, I can tell is this a story I want to tell uh and the more I got to know Rick the more just embedded in my own I could see myself 
in him so much. And the, I, I knew that I had to, or wanted to tell the story or his life story. And, um, little did I know and naively I thought, Oh, this will take a year. And, uh, just between like how private he was and, uh, just so much information to uncover, you know, this is, this is a story about someone who's, who is no longer with us. So I wanted to be very delicate with everyone involved and, um, very, uh, empathetic to, to everyone, because this is, this is, a someone that they lost. I mean, this is a partner. This is, this is a friend that they have lost. So, it wasn't just like kind of slapdash let's, you know, just uncover a bunch of information. It was like really getting to sort of the heart of finding who Rick was. And I think that that was one of the, the things that everyone even still is like, was kind of a, uh, in a way, a head scratcher of Rick was so many things to so many different types of people. And one of the, one of the interesting things it's like, I've, I've, had sort of fundraiser parties for the film along the way. And um, I would have people come up to me and say, Oh, like, you know, after watching footage, they would say, that's not the Rick that I knew because he, he did have these, this like very, uh, this life that he was, he would go out with friends and party in the eighties and dress up. And then he had this sort of Microsoft persona and a philanthropy persona and who he was as a husband. And, so uh, people knew him in certain facets and here I am presenting it in a whole film and I, I could see people sort of reacting to that along the way. You're listening to an interview with filmmaker Aaron Bear, the director of Yes I Am, the Rick Wyland story on 3CRs in your face. 3CR. I really sensed your empathy for Rick in the documentary tell us about those 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 commonalities that common ground that that led you to having that empathy with him i think um i well first i'm i would say i'm almost empathetic to a fault um where i it's like i can walk into a room and sort of like tell who's sad who's angry who's happy and then like adjusting my own self to to the situation and i kind of felt like that with rick of going through his life and who he was as a young man um, and then launching this, this uh, Titan of, of a company um, that became his life. And then also his, his philanthropy and his friends and his lovers. And, you know, you're uncovering this along the way. And I just, as a gay man myself, just thinking uh, it's, I was like sort of running this parallel path of like, I, I, I struggled with my own, you know, uh, depression and I, I, you know, seeking out like, you know, a therapist along the way. And, um, while also making this movie about someone who has struggled and trying to find themselves. And so in, I, I, I can see it all now, but like when I was making it, it definitely didn't really dawn on me until like the very end to where Rick and I had this, he taught me so much about myself and who I am and who I, who, how I want to carry myself in this world as a human being and how I treat other people. You mentioned Bill Gates before, of course, you interview him in the documentary. What were your observations about, about Bill and his relationship with Rick as colleagues? Uh, Bill 
was tremendous on so many levels of, I think, uh, you know, we weren't talking about Microsoft in, per se. We were, we were talking about a friendship and a very young friendship. I mean, these guys met in high school. So I think he was excited to, to talk about it. And he, I think he comes across that way in the film and he, uh, he had lots of like just tidbits and information about Rick and how, you know, these three young guys started this, this idea, had this idea and they were talented. And then it became uh, like uh, a social and uh, economic and global change for every single person living on this planet. It's a kind of a, a hard thing to wrap your mind around. Your next documentary is called There is a Light That Never Goes Out. What can you tell us about it? Well, it is, um, it isn't a documentary, but it is based on true events. Uh, it's about a, uh, a friend of mine who grew up in Milwaukee in the late eighties, early nineties. Uh, and he would always tell me these stories about being kicked out of his parents' house or being gay and finding his chosen family and just really fascinating, really cool type of stories. And I would always tell him, you should write this down. And he finally did. So we have just been collaborating over the past year on it. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's about, it's a coming of age story. It's about finding yourself, um, through tragedy and heartache. And, uh, this was a, a, during a time, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, uh, uh, American ser serial killers in the, in the States, but, uh, there was a guy named Jeffrey Dahmer that, uh, was, would cruise the bars back in the late eighties, early nineties. And, um, my friend would would see him out, and um, he also kind of plays a role in the film as well. But 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 ultimately, it, it's a it's a story about survival and and the face of 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 when everything all the cards are stacked against you, you you end up coming out the other side. Absolutely, of course, it's an amazing situation in America at the moment. You've got a new administration that's very progressive on LGBTIQ issues, but you've also got the backdrop of the Republican Party almost engaging, you know, while well, definitely engaging authoritarianism and, and almost fascism. It seems. Uh, what's it like for you as a gay man, but also as a filmmaker, living in that environment in America at the moment? Well, during that, during the past four years, and you know, we're America is just now sort of coming out of that. It's almost going to. I think that there's going to be a lot of work to be done and a lot of healing that's still happening. I mean, uh, the new administration is doing everything that they can, but it's there's a lot of just like lag and carryover of just sort of a, a trauma in a way that exists. And but during this time, I. I, when I was making the film, this was during the past five years during the, the whole dump truck administration was that, that was make me, it made me try even harder to finish this film and really get it out there and showing who Rick was and uh, how important his role in the world is. Absolutely, because, I mean, the regressive policies of the Trump administration towards our community is the antithesis of, of what Rick Wyland stood for and, and fought for. It, it, precisely that. I mean, everything that Rick wanted to do and accomplish um, was the exact opposite of what happened. And honestly, James, through Rick's gifts and through his his, his work, um, we would not be as far as we are today without him. And that's, it's an, that's like the understatement of the century. It's, you know, again, if I could 
make a, a four hour version of this film, I would. Um, however, it's, it's, uh, he was such a, a private and secret man. And I am also respecting that as well. Finally, what was the mo- most emotional moment for you when making the documentary, uh, especially when you were talking to his partners? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, my most emotional moment was and continues to be the fact that I've realized that death is not the end. And it, the essence of this film is death is not the end. And it's a constant reminder in my life of uh, that knowing that what I'm doing is, is, and it, knowing what I'm doing is, is making change. And like Rick's inspire Rick is, has inspired me uh, to, to be a better person. Like, and I, I have been so just like emotional with just the smallest things lately of just being able to connect with older friends and, realize that life isn't um, like, don't take it for granted because, you know, try to try to live each day. And I know that sounds so easy, but it's like, it's true. And Rick's overarching and lasting legacy for me has been that of just wanting to do simply better in the world. And it continues to be very emotional, but uh, th- there were so many emotional parts of, I mean, I think I cried in, in every single interview that I did. Well, it's something you should be very proud of. Yes, I am. The Rick Wyland story. Aaron Bear, thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thank you, James. 3CR. I
Joan, I'm a trading there. Me, myself, I, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. While Georgia Thane is the coordinator of SIDAC, the Sex Industry Decriminalisation Action Committee in South Australia, and she joins us on the line. Georgia, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Georgia, tell us about the uh, legal situation for sex workers in South Australia. So currently, the laws in South Australia uh, are the most archaic laws in the country uh, for sex work, and essentially it's uh, complete criminalisation. And that means that police officers can entrap workers and incriminate workers, and that occurs regularly. Uh, So kind of puts sex workers in a precarious position where police are the regulators of the sex industry, they're the enforcers of, of quite harsh, outdated laws, uh, but then they're also supposedly meant to act as the protectors and they, they want workers reporting crimes to them. So it's a, it's a very, um, yeah, a very tricky situation for workers to be in. Absolutely. It sounds like a huge conflict of interest that makes mm. it, you know, devastatingly, you know, harsh on sex workers, like you say. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us about the campaign to decriminalise sex work in in South Australia. I know there's a a bill that's currently before a parliamentary committee. Mm. Yep. So uh, we had a decriminalisation bill that was just very narrowly defeated by a few votes in late 2019. That was a very uh, comprehensive bill. It had things in it like equal opportunities, um, and spent convictions measures and things like that. Um, it was the 13th attempt, and it was the furthest that a bill had progressed um, out of preview, the 12 previous attempts. The bill being so narrowly defeated uh, was pretty widely regarded as a disappointment. There was media coverage at the time um, that kind of said, had Parliament, you know, people, the community felt Parliament had made a mistake. So that momentum has carried us into uh, this new bill, which is called the Repeal of Sex Work Offences Bill, uh, which was introduced in 2020. It's a different type of bill. It essentially removes any mention of sex work from the criminal code so that we can sort of remove police as the regulators of the sex industry. Uh, And then earlier this year, that bill was voted into a, a select committee and public submissions were gathered. So the committee's working on that uh, and we are hearing evidence from different stakeholders. Uh, Recently we heard from the South Australian Chief Public Health Officer, Professor Nicholas Beria, uh, who's almost like celebrity status in South Australia these days. People call her Saint Nicola. um, And she's been been around a lot and advising a lot on COVID. Uh, And she gave evidence to the committee. Uh, She commended the workers of the sex industry on their leadership because um, as, as, they've managed to keep themselves safe and, and practice work health and safety even though it is criminalised. Uh, and she also highlighted the risk that our current laws pose um, when it comes to public health. So that's um, really great. And we also, uh, even more recently, we know that from a worker's submission to the committee, um, there was included in that some legal advice from a, a prominent barrister, a special counsel barrister, 
which suggested that South Australian police may be breaching laws um, through their, their method of entrapping and incriminating workers, which was, it, this information is quite impactful, especially given the uh, sort of breakdown of relationship and the mistrust between police and workers. How do sex workers feel about this new bill? Uh, is it inferior to the other one that was so narrowly defeated? It's it, it does uh, not ha- it doesn't have the uh, comprehensive elements uh, like the spent convictions measures in it that the last bill had. Uh, but it is still at its core essentially a decriminalisation bill. If we remove those uh, mentions of sex work from the acts um, that they're in, uh, it's achieving the same purpose. Um, we recognise that it's a, quite a long and slow process. Uh, so we want this... Uh, the, the idea of the repeal bill is to, you know, everybody can agree that the criminal provisions for sex work and sex workers being arrested and charged, even if you don't particularly agree with sex work, you can agree that those charges and and that that penalty is causing issue and it's a barrier and it's discrimination and all these things. So it's really trying to uh, concentrate on, on removing that element as quickly as we can. So it sounds like there's been a positive political shift uh, in relation to the major parties and other parties when it comes to sex work? Like, how do you read the political tea leaves on the issue? Mm. We're in an interesting landscape in South Australia, which certainly has uh, uh, some pretty far-reaching impacts on, on all types of bills, especially uh, conscience votes, like this bill will be. So MPs can vote however they like. They don't need to follow party line. There's lots of factors to consider there, especially uh, internal party factions and whatnot. But overall, I think it's really important um, that we sort of acknowledge that the South Australian state government, as it stands today, we have an election uh, early next year, we have the worst representation for women uh, and non-binary people of any state-level government in Australia. And we can see the impacts of this, not just in what bills are introduced and passed or not passed, but also in the prioritising of bills and how long it takes them to go through the processes. So while we have really strong support from, from members of every party, the Attorney-General, Vicky Chapman, uh, she's co-sponsored the last bill and remains very supportive. A lot of Labor MPs uh, are very supportive. And, of course, our minor parties, uh, Tammy Franks, MLC from the Greens, has introduced the last bill in this bill, they remain like very strong supporters. Uh, it's just navigating that uh, political landscape where predominantly women and gender non-binary social issues uh, perhaps don't get the attention that they deserve. Have the numbers shifted in South Australia's upper house? Will they enable the passage of the bill? Uh, it, our upper house isn't... Um, yeah, it will be very interesting to see the impact um, post uh, our election in March because if we uh, we're so close, um, it was about five, like I think it was about six votes in 2019 um, that the bill was defeated by. So that is politically like that's just such a small margin that we could absolutely claw back. And we already have heard from a number of MPs since that vote who have come to us and said, "Look, I, you know." 
whether they regret it or not, I'm not sure, but they, they acknowledge that, yeah, we're right, something needs to happen and, and they're on board now. So it's a slow, slow process for some, but I feel like we're def- the de- tide is definitely turning. Will there be a vote on the bill before the South Australian election in March next year? Oh, that's a very tricky question. Uh, I mean, Parliament does tend to go a bit crazy uh, before in, in the lead-up to an election. Um, so we, uh, SIDAC, sort of, you know, we've got our plans for if that were to happen, but we've also got um, our plan to really insert sex work uh, as a, an election issue and to really campaign hard in those in those minority seats um, because... We've seen, um, I think, our local uh, media outlet during the 2019 and during this select committee campaign have put out numerous polls uh, and they always come back overwhelmingly in support of decrim. So we know people support it uh, and we can prioritise it and, and make sure people are aware of where people they're voting for sit in the, relation to this issue. Of course, last week the Victorian government announced it will introduce a bill to decriminalise sex work here uh, by the end of the year. Has that given the campaign in South Australia some momentum as well? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's so exciting um, for you guys over in Victoria and we're so happy over here in SA to hear that. Definitely, um, you know, gives us some momentum. We still occasionally uh, come across... Uh, the sort of rhetoric that this is a crazy far-out idea, uh, even though New South Wales and Northern Territory have, have already done it. So to just, you know, add another another state to the list, um, just it, it further addresses that this is the direction that a lot of governments are heading in and because it's the, it's the most, it's the best practice, it's the harm-reducing uh, direction. On another matter, what has um what's it been like for sex workers in South Australia during the pandemic with such a punitive, you know, police culture around sex work? Oh yeah, it's just, uh, there's definitely been some some pretty big impact. You've got under criminalisation, you've got you know an increased risk of, of experiencing violence. You've obviously got the threat of prosecution. All these kinds of things. So the workers can be isolated. They don't necessarily have access, easy access to work health safety information. So that's just all exacerbated by COVID. Uh, and then you've got the, the added issue that... Um, you've got the added issue that essentially, um, because they're not considered workers, there's not any avenue for them to get support. Um, you know, they can't get JobKeeper or anything like that when legally they're not working in a in a business. So a lot of workers um, struggled a lot, but as, as Nicola Beria, our Chief Public Health Officer, outlined, uh, the, the sex industry did an amazing job of, of coming together and sharing information and supporting each other through that because they didn't have access to the things that other workers did. Well, Georgia, fingers crossed that sex work Mm. will be decriminalised in South Australia next year. Thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. All the best. Oh, no, thank you for having me. And uh, we'll be watching the Victorian Bill very closely. We've got all our fingers crossed over here. Fantastic. Uh, Hope to talk again. And, uh, yeah, keep up the great fight. Cheers. Thanks.
I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. One, two, three. Stevie, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Dr. Eves Rees is a author and historian, and they join me on the line. Eves, welcome to the program. It's so great to have you on board. Hi there. Thanks for inviting me. It's a great pleasure. Oh, there's so much I want to ask you about. Of course, you're a prolific writer, and uh, you feature in the current edition of Bent Street, the anthology. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so um, I'm sure many listeners will know of Bent Street, which is a um, LGBTIQA plus uh, journal of Australian writing. It's been around for a few years. 
And the latest edition, which has just come out um, this month, which is called Soft Borders, Hard Edges, it's a special edition of the journal that's focused on trans and gender-diverse writing. So um, I'm a trans person and I co-edited this special issue with Sam Elkin, um, a good friend and collaborator of mine who's also a trans writer. And we really had a wonderful time um, pulling together this incredible array of um, trans talent that's out there. Yeah. Tell us about some of the other contributors. So a lot of the contributors came from this project that Sam and I started last year called Spilling the Tea. That was a writing collective for the trans and gender diverse community. Um, uh, Sam and I started off Spilling the Tea just before the pandemic started last year. And we initially thought it would be like a face-to-face kind of series of workshops here in um, in Melbourne. But because of the pandemic, we had to go online. But it actually ended up being a kind of benefit in disguise because we got to include writers from all around the country. We had people from, you know, Perth, from um, regional Tasmania, from up in Queensland. And so it was a really, really great insight into trans experience around the country. And a big goal of that project was to publish work um from all these writers in in an anthology. So a bunch of the, the pieces in this special issue of Bent Street are writers from the Spilling the Tea Collective, a lot of um, largely kind of pretty young transmasculine writers often writing about their transition experiences. But then for Spilling, for, sorry, but then for Bent Street, we also put out a wider call for contributors um, and we got some... Um, really interesting new voices. One of the highlights for me is uh, a contribution by Stacey Stokes, who is a trans woman currently incarcerated in a male um, prison in Victoria, which is quite a um, significant problem. And she writes really movingly about that experience. And it's, yeah, it's a fantastic read. So it sounds like there were lots of perspectives in the, in the anthology where you just went, wow. Yeah. I know. It was really, I mean, I'm a pretty, in a sense, pretty newly out trans person, in a sense. I'm a bit of a baby trans. I only came out about three years ago in 2018. So for me, it was actually just an incredible experience to get a sense of the richness and diversity of trans life in Australia. Like, it's really true to say there is no one trans story. You know, some people know they're trans from the time they're three years old. Some people take until their 60s or 70s to come out and um, and realise who they are. You know, for some people, being trans involves, like, you know, medical transition, gender affirmation surgeries. But for some people, it's just a matter of shifting the way they talk about themselves. And, and it's also, you know, um, a real range of experiences in terms of how other people react to them. You know, the tragic fact is... A lot of trans people in Australia are still fighting for basic rights and recognition. You know, that's why we have trans women um, locked up in male jails. But what I love about this issue of Ben Street is it's not just stories of discrimination and stigma and prejudice. Like, there's so much gender euphoria in there as well as gender euphoria. And there's really wonderful accounts of people really learning to feel joy and pleasure and ease in their own skin. Wow, and that must give you so much joy and the and the readers so much joy to, to read those stories of resilience and creativity as well, creativity with life. Oh, completely. I really hope um, this edition of Ben Street will be read far and wide and will really shake up 
what people um, think about transness. Because, you know, for, for so long, um, transness has been, you know, barely visible in mainstream culture. And when it is visible, it's always, almost always depicted in negative terms. You know, the trans people are the murder victims, they're the strange deviants, they're the laughing stocks, they're the freaks. So, of course, that means that for people... Um, like me, who, you know, grow up feeling not quite right in their gender, it's really hard for us to realise we're trans because we only see negative portrayals of transness in the world. So I really um, sincerely hope that, you know, bringing more trans-authored perspectives in and showing the huge array of what transness can look like will really help make it easier for other people to name themselves as trans and to embrace that identity joyfully. Of course, you are a doctor of history. Your academic interests include gender, modernity, mobility and whiteness. That must be especially fascinating as a historian to look at those issues in the current era. It really is. Um, You know, I was working as a historian um, for many years before I came out as trans. Um, And, you know, the history that I've written, you know, it doesn't really focus on trans or queer identity per se, but it really brings a new perspective to the work I've done um, in projects like Ben Street. It helps me, I think, see um, this current moment we're in, in the wake of, you know, what's been called the trans tipping point as a very kind of distinctive moment in the history of trans experience to recognise we're in a particular era where things are changing very quickly for both for good and for ill and to kind of really embrace the potential of this moment. But it also, you know, my training as a historian helps me understand that, you know, while language like transness, genderqueer, non-binary, you know, it's all, they're all fairly new terms. But, you know, trans people in one way or another have always been here. There's an incredibly long history of people who, um, you know, call it what you will, but they don't identify with the gender they were assigned at birth. And, you know, so many cultures all around the world have different names and concepts for this. And it's really important to recognise this history as a way to legitimise transness. You know, so often conservative commentators say, oh, this is just a trend, this is just a newfangled thing. But no, it's clear that this is this is part of what it means to be human, to engage in diverse forms of gender expression and identity. You mentioned your own transition over the last few years, and of course your memoir about your transition is coming out later this year. You must be so over the moon about that. I am. I'm very excited and a little bit terrified as well, to be honest, because, you know, I think anyone who's written you know, life writing or memoir writing knows. It feels, you know, it feels like stepping up naked in front of the whole world to write your own story and put it out there. But it's been an absolute privilege to um, to get to write this. Um, this kind of project emerged from um, an essay I wrote last year called Reading the Mess Backwards won the Calibre Essay Prize, um, which is awarded by the Australian Book Review. And that kind of... Um, enabled me to pitch a memoir to um, some publishers and I got a contract with Alan and Unwin. So my memoir, which is called All About Eve, Notes from a Transition, will be published um, on the 31st of August, so next month. And what this book does is kind of, you know, it's not, it's trying to avoid the kind of neat transition narrative that we're, we're familiar with, that kind of familiar narrative of I was broken and then I found myself and now I'm fixed. I don't want to tell that kind of story. It's a story about messiness, 
and confusion and sort of stumbling along and trying to find answers somewhere in the mix. Um, and I also kind of layer my own experience of transition with kind of historical perspectives and bring in other kind of trans life writing out that, that's out there because, you know, I, I you know, I've got one story to tell, but my story is not the only story um, and in many ways it's not the most interesting one. So I wanted to use my my transition story as a kind of portal to explore a lot of general issues about bodies and identity and sexuality more broadly. Well, it sounds truly fascinating. I can't wait for it to come out. Thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. Cheers. Have a great weekend. You too.
Australian band died pretty there. Stone Age Cinderella. I'm out of here. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities. A future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. Facebook.